0: When was the last time you worked an ED shift and you did not have any patients waiting for a hospital bed?
1: When was the last time you had a completely empty waiting room? When was the last time
0: you heard that crowding was an emergency department problem?
1: When was the last time that you were told boarding admitted patients is just a reality?
0: If boarding or ED crowding is your life and you just want some solutions, this is the podcast for you. And if this is a completely foreign idea to you, this is the podcast for you to learn about the reality for many emergency departments.
1: This is EM Pulse with your hosts, Sarah Madaris and Julia Magana, victims of our own success. ED Crowding, Part One.
0: Welcome back. Jules, I love it when the main discussion on a recent shift is the exact topic of the podcast we're working on.
1: (laughs) Right? It helps me know that we are talking about relevant issues. And man, ED boarding
0: is an issue for us and for many hospitals across the United States. Yeah, didn't you walk into
1: a shift the other day with a ton of patients that were boarding? Yeah, believe it or not, we were boarding a hundred patients. A hundred. Man, that's more than some entire hospitals.
0: And that's why when the commentary called Emergency Department Crowding, The Canary in the Health System, came out in the New England Journal of Medicine Catalyst, I knew we needed to speak
1: with one of the authors. Sarah, I totally agree with you. And fortunately, one of the authors, Dr. Deborah Dirks, is a former colleague of ours here at UC Davis. She spoke to us about the details and solutions for ED crowding and boarding. And over the next two podcasts, we will get into it with her.
0: Yeah, this is a two-part series because it is such an important issue. In this first part, we'll discuss the scope of the issue, and in the second part, we'll discuss some solutions.
2: I just want to thank you all for inviting me, and I'm Deb Dirks. I am chair of emergency medicine at UT Southwestern. I also am president of the uh, SAM Academy for Academic Chairs in Emergency Medicine, and that really is the group that put together this manuscript that you're talking about. Clinical relevant, I am a lifelong nocturnist, and so dealing with overcrowding, working all nights is what I have done for my
1: entire career. Let's get into this a little, Deb. Tell us, why did the New England Journal of Medicine ask you to write a commentary on ED overcrowding?
2: So this commentary actually came out of the Academy of Academic Chairs of Emergency Medicine Workgroup, a group that kind of put together to talk about some of our boarding issues. We initially drafted it a couple of years ago and tried to sell it to people and shockingly no one wanted to listen or no one wanted to publish it so you know we went to uh, probably three or four journals and just kept getting shut down and then covid came along and so we took the opportunity to pitch it to the journal catalyst really in the context of hey things have changed Our message is still the same. Boarding still is an issue. But I think because we were able to spin it into the pandemic issue that it became a lot more interesting to people when we all know that this has been going on for decades and uh, we just needed a platform to get this outside of emergency medicine because it isn't just our problem.
0: Yeah, and let's start by defining these terms a little bit. So what do you mean when you talk about crowding or boarding in the ED? So really, what boarding in the ED
1: is
2: that time from when it takes for you to be admitted, so the decision is made to admit you, and you actually get to go upstairs. When we talk about ED crowding, it's the overall volume that an ED has. And so that really encompasses not only people in beds, but people waiting to be seen, people in chairs in the hallway, any nook and cranny that we end up putting a patient as we try to provide the best care we can.
1: Yeah, I'm very familiar with this process. <laughs> Unfortunately, we all are. Yeah, those are all very familiar terms to me. Deb, tell us what factors have contributed most to ED boarding. Let's address that one first. Yeah,
2: you know, so I think the ED boarding issue has simply been a supply and demand. Our hospitals are full. And we kept thinking that would stop being full, but they are full. And they're really, most of us are functioning at over 85% capacity. When a hospital beds are over 85%, especially when they get closer to 90, there is that inevitable, therefore, we have people wanting to go in and there's nowhere to go. And that really accounts why people bored. Why that happened? Well, I think the bottom line is medicine for hospitals is a business. And it's a business for medicine, I guess, in general, it's a business. And hospitals make money from procedures. And it's those elective admissions that really generate a substantial amount of money, the ED only accounts for maybe up to 50% of all admissions at some centers, a lot less at other centers, such as county hospitals that I primarily practice at. And so when hospitals have this decision, I've got a limited resource in beds. I can either give them to people coming in from the outside for my elective cases that are going to bring in high revenue, or I can bring in the patients from the ED And that balance leans toward and decisions often lean toward bringing in people from the elective admissions from the outside that are high revenue generators and keep the hospital afloat instead of prioritizing patients in the ED as an admission.
0: So that being said, are there certain hospitals that are more impacted by boarding and overcrowding? You know, I used to think it was. I think right
2: now because of COVID, because there's now some additional influences on why this is occurring, I think it's honestly equal. I think all of us struggle with that. I think that kind of tug and pull of where the revenue stream comes from, from an institution, the negative impact that COVID had on hospital and health system finances, I don't think there's probably a hospital in the country that doesn't struggle with this in some way right now.
1: What are some of the risks for boarding? Why would we want to avoid this beside the obvious? (laughs) From a patient perspective, they aren't getting the care
2: at the location they expect, right? And so when patients board in the ED, depending on how your health system handles a border, what I mean is, are they continually managed by the ED? Or does the inpatient team come down and manage them? So in the case where the ED manages them, Those inpatient orders and all the treatment that you're being admitted for can be delayed because that's not being started until you get to your inpatient team. The reality also is even if the inpatient team is managing them, these patients are being managed by ED nurses, who in some systems have one nurse to eight patients where we can't really cut off that volume that's there. And so you may not be getting as a patient the time and the effort and the attention you need if you've been admitted all the way upstairs to the inpatient ward. And so from that patient who's being admitted perspective, it may be delaying care. From the patient who's actually waiting to get into the bed, right? So that's our waiting room patients who haven't even been seen by a physician usually, unless it is to get things started. The risk to them is that adverse events can happen in the waiting room before they even get seen. And from an ED provider's perspective, that's what we fear, right? There is nothing worse from patient having an adverse event in the waiting room. It happens, not commonly because we, our nurses do a great job in triage. But when you can't get people in and when your waits are 2, three, eight, 10 hours, those adverse events happen. And there's really little we can do.
0: So what would you say is a, quote, normal boarding time or a reasonable length of time for a patient to board in the ED? If you
2: ask kind of the academic chairs group and ask in an emergency medicine physician, we think two hours, right? Two hours after admission should be the time where they should be get got upstairs. Everything should be tidied up. Report given all those things happen. The Joint Commission says four hours. They actually have a recommendation that borders don't last any more than four hours in the ED. Unfortunately... That's a recommendation that isn't enforced. So they're going to put out this guidance, but it's one of those things the Joint Commission puts out there and doesn't have any teeth to it. So no sticks.
1: You know, some of the risks of boarding that I see as a physician is also our patients are unhappy. And so you already bring in somebody who's frustrated back to that bed when there's overcrowding. That makes it a lot harder to have that joint therapeutic relationship. And then you have patients that are waiting to go upstairs and they become increasingly frustrated and understandably so. Right. And you're the one that's face to face dealing with that. And um, I think it increases our burnout as well. I think it increases
2: burnout, but I also think it may be attributing to why we're seeing so much more violence in the workplace. You know, agitated patients, verbal abuse. So, you know, our frontline providers in the ED, and for me, frontline is the emergency department because that is the front door. But the amount of verbal and physical abuse that we're seeing across the country is at a, a level we've never had it before.
1: And you understand. I mean, like you're not seeing normal diurnal cycles, you know, food, sleep. Everything is is just in a very different cycle in the emergency department versus in the hospital itself. So I understand where their frustration comes from.
0: And I see that, too, with people who've been waiting in the waiting room for a long time and then they don't get back to us until they have escalated. And so then we're already starting that ED visit at a point of escalation. And it's really difficult to move on in a productive way from there.
2: Unless you work in the emergency department, you don't understand what those first two minutes of an interaction and how important they are to gain someone's trust. Because we don't have the benefit of seeing these people over days. We have no relationship with them. And when they start off angry... We're way behind the eight ball on trying to actually figure out what they're there for, building some trust. And trust in our care results in less downstream visits, less downstream questions, and probably less resources used. I don't have any data for that, but just anecdotally.
1: What about those that are giving up? If they're in the waiting room, they're leaving without being seen. Tell us about that population. Who is leaving without being seen? So there's been a lot of work on this, and
2: it's kind of spanned about 20 years, where every now and then you get another paper about who is leaving. And because of the way the emergency department triages, right? So we have four different triage classifications, or five, where you have level fours and fives, which are lower acuity. Threes, we kind of call the walking sick. Level two and ones are much more acutely ill. Those two or ones, they usually get brought back. Something about them makes the nurse and triage nervous enough that they get kind of rooted through the system and put somewhere in the ED. The ones we really worry about losing are the level threes because those are the walking ill and they actually can be pretty darn sick. And so when you look at studies on who's leaving, it is the lower acuity patients, not necessarily the less sick patients, but the lower acuity patients who tend to be younger. It's going to be also people who have limited access to care. There's been studies that show, though, the people that leave about have a maybe one in six chance of actually returning in a week. And so these people sometimes aren't out of the system forever. They're just going to come back at a later date and a different time.
1: That left without being seen metric is something that a lot of hospitals track and use as a metric for emergency department quality. And it can even translate into bonuses, right? That can be a, a very strong metric that we're held to. Is that a meaningful metric? Is that something emergency departments should be held to? So, inherent to
2: our core of emergency physicians, we want to take care of every patient who arrives. The metric itself, though, can be gamed so easily, and it includes things that are out of our control that it, I don't think it's a great one to let us know how we're doing. So I can send somebody to triage, a physician in triage, and they can have a two-minute interaction with a patient and order some labs that may or may not get done depending on where you are or may not even be ordered at all. And that interaction with a physician occurs, so they can be labeled as seen, and so they aren't going to be included in a metric, but we aren't meeting the patient's needs, right? We're just meeting a metric need. And so I do think that focusing sometimes on those metrics inherently takes away from the physician-patient interaction that's needed.
1: Is there a more meaningful metric that we should be looking at? So the one that's tag
2: team with left without being seen is left before treated complete. And that really encompasses everybody who actually has that interaction with a physician or any provider, at triage, or actually had a workup started that don't complete that workup. So I do think that's a more valuable metric because I think it is, you can game it less. Um, It still has the inherent limitations, though, that left without being seen metric does. A lot of the ability to improve that metric is not within our control because it becomes kind of that backlog funnel issue where we've got a narrow funnel. You know, we, we have a, p- a lot of people coming in that reverse funnel and beds upstairs are really narrow and we can't get them up or out.
0: So I wanted to flesh this out a little bit more. So let's talk about what are some of the things that need to happen for somebody to get upstairs and how high up does this go? What are the, the steps needed to address this?
2: So we see a patient the emergency medicine physician provider APP makes a determination that they actually need to be admitted. The admitting service then gets engaged and accepts the patient. And depending if you're on an academic institution or not, that can either be really fast or not so fast, but definitely it occurs, right? So your accepting team accepts them. Then a bed gets assigned. And the bed gets assigned based on the availability of an open bed. What that usually means, though, is beds can be pre-assigned. So When I come into the hospital in the morning, there's a group that meets and they figure out how many discharges they're going to have for the day, anticipated, and how many elective admissions come in. And then they kind of know just based on census and historical volumes how many ED admissions there usually are. And so there's a prediction on who can be admitted and how many beds they're going to release to the ED. So let's say a patient comes in, they're assigned a team, they're pre-assigned a bed. For that pre-assigned bed to turn into an actual bed, a couple of things need to happen. One, the patient needs to get discharged. So that means they get their meds, they get their final information from the treating team, they get a ride, and they leave. Then the bed has to get cleaned. So you need cleaning services to make sure the bed's cleaned so the next patient can come in. And once the bed's cleaned and it's finally released, the patient, after giving report to the nurses upstairs, our nursing team takes the patient up. And there can be limitations along that entire cascade. There can be patient related families, not they don't get off work until 5 p.m. So they can't come pick a patient up till 5 p.m. And so early discharges can't happen. You could be short people who clean beds. Right. So right now, a lot of us, especially in the era of COVID, when we've lost so many workers, that finding people to clean the beds can be a problem. You can be short nurses. And the nurses upstairs, that can be not enough nurses to take report. It can be not enough nurses to keep beds open. All those things happen. And currently, with the result of Ovencron, we're seeing problems with almost every step of the way, from resource limitations to staffing limitations to a lot of patients needing beds.
0: The paper also talks about some of the financial incentives for hospitals and how that might not align directly with the ED needs. So that really goes back to what brings revenue
2: and where hospitals get their biggest revenue. And they get their biggest revenue from procedures, either surgeries, interventional radiology procedures, cardiology procedures, electrophysiology procedures. Procedures bring revenue and surgeries bring revenue. And so that's when a lot of the beds are filled by elective patients who may have an emergent need or an an urgent need But they come in and have those procedures, and then, therefore, those beds aren't available to have an ED patient take them. We've seen a lot of changes because of COVID. And so you hear a lot of health systems canceling elective surgeries to actually release some more beds to the hospitals. But that has a huge negative effect on the hospital's bottom line and their ability to provide care in general. And so most hospitals will do everything they can to limit the amount of time where they are not allowing those types of procedures. So they can remain fiscally relevant and
0: viable. So from a purely financial standpoint, a patient coming in, for example, for an elective surgery is a more desirable patient, a more desirable admit than a patient, um, especially if they are uninsured or underinsured who might be coming in from the ED for a medical complaint.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And, and that is, that's hard for us to swallow because we view all patients as just patients. But I think that's the reality of healthcare today.
1: You know, I had a real aha moment um, when I was reading the commentary, and I'm just going to read a quote that was meaningful to me. In many of our institutions, the risk of harm is better concentrated in the ED than distributed through the hospital. And, I, you know, in the commentary, you guys talk about that this can manifest by sending patients in for an expedited workup Instead of assuming the risk of waiting a few hours or even days for the results or admitting through the ED instead of waiting at home or in another location while waiting admission or not writing admit orders on someone who clearly needs an admission because they think it's going to be expedited or done faster in the emergency department and they don't want to use those resources in other areas. That was huge for me to think about it in terms of risk talk to me about why you think the ED is that concentrated spot for risk and and how we got here today so in a lot of ways we
2: are victims to our own success we provide 24/7 access to care in an excellent manner and treat everyone and provide everyone with the testing they need to get it done to optimize their care in many ways our health system's broken right when you talk to people and and with that even need things like an MRI for a back, you know, who are having ridiculous symptoms or warrant an emergent one, try to get one as an outpatient. It's not going to be in a day. It's not going to be in two. And it's probably going to be in a month, right? And so the ED is that location where those interventions can be done. Also have to acknowledge that even when people try to do things to avoid the ED, direct admits, when the hospital's full, the hospital's full. And so if you have a patient who is trying to be admitted and they don't get called for 10 hours and they're being admitted for a reason, they aren't getting the care they need either. And so coming to the ED at least gets something initiated and labs done and management started. You know, I'll be honest, my mom's doctor tried to admit her. She sat at home waiting for a call for a bed. And after 10 hours, they said, look it, we still don't have one. Go to the emergency department. Everyone was trying to do the absolute right thing at that time. It didn't work.
0: Okay, let's stop here. I highly recommend you read this commentary for yourself. You won't regret it. You'll find the link in our show notes. It's a well written map on the issue and
1: solutions. So let's recap the causes of ED crowding that Deb mentions and are expanded upon in the commentary. Check out Table 1. Here are the factors that impact ED crowding from big picture down to detailed. Pulse check. Health system level
0: factors that impact ED crowding include, while the financial structure of a hospital promotes hospital crowding, there's a lack of primary care capacity in SNFs and rehabs and psychiatric and addiction services, and a lack of access for the uninsured or underinsured. There's a lack of leadership alignment and priority to these issues, and hospitals are not really structured to meet 24-7 operational demand, and of course,
1: crisis fatigue and staff shortages. Factors that impact ED crowding on the ED input level include the inability of primary care providers to see patients in timely manners that result in possibly unnecessary ED visits, There's also a preference to send a patient to the emergency department for workups and or elective admissions to the ED for processing purposes. Some insurers will not cover, quote, elective admissions, but will cover an emergency admission. ED throughput factors that impact
0: crowding include increased patient complexity, increased ability of time intensive technology like increased use of MRI, ultrasound or CT. And lab radiology or, wait for it, consultant delays.
1: (laughs) (laughs) ED output factors that impact ED crowding are access block, like a high census or operational inefficiency preventing bed availability, or an inefficient transfer process from the ED to inpatient unit and inpatient discharge delays. That is a
0: lot. But there are a lot of issues that impact our flow, our practice, and our patients. In our next episode, Edie Crowding Part 2, we dive into solutions to these problems, and you won't want to miss it. Check it out on March 17th.
1: In the meantime, we are still preparing for our podcast series on women in emergency medicine. We're compiling stories that illustrate what it is like to be a woman in emergency medicine. We would be honored if you would call our storyline to record your own story. Call 951-251-4804. And leave a message or contact us on social media at e-impulse Podcast.
0: Another way to show your support for eImpulse Podcast is to spread the word to your colleagues. And thank you to our department for working through stressful conditions. And thank you to OM Audio Productions for not crowding us out with all the other podcasts you do.
1: <laughs> See y'all next time.